Hi, this is Lex, and welcome to the Fintech Blueprint. It's your podcast about fintech, decentralized finance, digital banking, investing, robo-advice, artificial intelligence, and all the other frontier technology that is transforming financial services. To get more content, like an illustrated transcript of this conversation in your inbox, subscribe at fintechblueprint.com. So without further delay, let's jump into today's episode. Hi, everybody, and welcome to today's conversation. I'm really excited to have with us today Kareem Saleh, who is the founder and CEO at Fairplay. We're going to learn about algorithmic bias and how to correct it and the types of things that artificial intelligence is now intermediating in our world and the best ways to get around that. So with that, Kareem, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Lex. Delighted to be here. It's my pleasure. You have such an interesting background coming to founding Fair Play and your role. So let's start at the beginning. Can you tell us a little bit about the core experiences, whether it was you know, work experience or education, that got you going in the beginning of your career? I have been interested in the question of how to write, underwrite hard-to-score borrowers basically my whole life. My parents are immigrants from North Africa. They immigrated to the United States in the early 70s, and like so many immigrants, needed a small loan, $12,000, to start a small business. And they called on every bank in Chicago, State Street Bank, First Bank, First, First Republic Bank of Chicago, Northern Trust, you name it, and they were turned down everywhere they went. In the case of our family, that denial for credit actually ended up having profound consequences My mother, who was pregnant with my brother at the time, ended up having to take a job working nights at a chemical processing facility. And that facility had lax safety practices. And one day there was an accident and my mom was exposed to radioactive isotopes and she was rushed to the hospital. Fortunately, they were able to save her life, but my little brother who was in utero didn't make it. And I will never forget the feeling in my stomach sitting with my mom in the recovery room when the doctors came in to let her know that she was cleared to go home. And in my kind of youthful exuberance, I said, if you're coming home, can we go to Great America, which is an amusement park to celebrate? I'll never forget my mom kind of looking me in the eye and saying, I can't go to Great America. I'm going back to the toxic chemical plant so that we can save up this money to start this small business. My family's experience with exclusionary lending really shaped my perspective that like access to credit is the sine qua non of modern life. And it's no exaggeration to say that, you know, that experience got me interested in this question of underwriting inherently hard to score borrowers, thin files, no files, people with some kind of credit event in their past, like a bankruptcy or a foreclosure, underwriting under conditions of deep uncertainty. I started doing that work in kind of frontier emerging markets, sub-Saharan Africa, Latin America, Eastern Europe, the Caribbean, and ended up actually working at a place that used to be called the Overseas Private Investment Corporation. It's now called the Development Finance Corporation, and it's the U.S. government's bilateral development bank. It exists to finance 
development-friendly projects in emerging markets. So think, you know, lending facilities for small and medium-sized businesses, project finance deals for things like clean energy, solar and wind, etc. And that work gave me visibility into the underwriting practices of some of the most prestigious financial institutions in the world. And what I was quite surprised to find is that even at the commanding heights of global finance, the underwriting methodologies were extremely primitive, certainly by you know, modern Silicon Valley standards. We're still talking 20 to 50 variables, mostly models that are logistic and linear regression built in Excel. And not only that, but all of those decisioning systems exhibited disparities towards people of color, towards women, towards other historically disadvantaged groups. And that got me really, that really surprised me because in theory, we have a legal regime in the United States that prohibits discrimination in lending. And so I was quite curious to understand that, like, how is it on the one hand that discrimination is, in lending is illegal, and on the other hand, it's ubiquitous? And what I found is that their financial institutions have historically relied on fancy consultancies and law firms. I sometimes jokingly refer to these as the fair lending industrial complex. Financial institution rely, institutions rely on these firms to come up with clever statistical and legal justifications to legitimate the discrimination in their lending portfolios. And I sort of took one look at that and thought I could do better and our team could do better, especially because the last several years has seen the emergence of new AI fairness methodologies whose explicit purpose is to do a better job of underwriting populations that are not well represented in the data. And so a few years ago, as the Black Lives Matter movement was sweeping across the country, I think many people in the financial services industry were asking them uh, themselves, you know, what they could do to address systemic inequality in the financial services system. And my co-founder and I kind of looked at this problem. And my co-founder is a PhD in pure mathematics. He's been at Google and Microsoft for many, many years. And we decided that the application of AI fairness techniques, and specifically what we refer to as fairness through awareness techniques, and we can talk about what that means, held the promise to increase positive outcomes like approvals for credit for historically disadvantaged groups. And so so about oh, a little over two years ago, John Merrill and I founded Fair Play. We cheekily refer to ourselves as the world's first fairness as a service company. And our software allows anybody using an algorithm to make a high stakes decision about someone's life to answer five questions. Is my algorithm fair? If not, why not? Could it be fairer? What's the economic impact to our business of being fair? And finally, did we give our declines, the folks we rejected, a second look to see if they might resemble good applicants on dimensions that the primary decisioning system didn't heavily take into account? Anyway, that's a little bit about my journey. That's a very moving story and obviously a difficult but quite impactful experience to get you to a current position. I do want to spend a little bit more time just unpacking some of the the things you've done in the past. You know, from your background, I notice a combination of 
this focus on global policy and you know understanding either the rest of the world as it relates to the United States or understanding marginalized groups within the United States through your legal background. And then, of course, you have a pretty foundational experience at Zest where I think you're exposed to artificial intelligence and underwriting for quite a while. Can you talk a little bit about your journey maybe on the legal and policy side? Like, What was that like? What kind of things did you see? What was important to you through that set of experiences? Yeah, I had the good fortune to work in politics and, and, and policy for many years in the early part of my career, largely on financial inclusion issues. And I got started doing that work at a place called the German Marshall Fund, where there we had a real focus on harnessing the global trading system to benefit folks in countries that maybe did not have good access to markets or strong systems of law that were undergirding their commercial relationships. And so it was really um, the work that I started doing at the German Marshall Fund that got me, not that not only kind of taught me about credit underwriting, especially for hard to score borrowers, but also about the other policy and regulatory systems that need to be in place for markets to really flourish, whether it's you know, rule of law, intellectual property protection, the ability of talent and labor to move in unrestrained and and free ways. And so, you know, in as much as I'm interested in uh, financial inclusion, I think underwriting is just a piece of solving that puzzle, that there need to be other governance and policy infrastructure in place so that few people can realize their full potential when they do have access to capital. And so I was I was fortunate to do that work in places like South Africa and India and Brazil. And then subsequently, I went to the State Department where I helped manage the team that negotiated the Paris Climate Agreement on behalf of the United States. And a, a key feature of the climate negotiations is how do we finance the transition from a high carbon to a low carbon future, especially for low income countries. This really brought me to the nexus of financial inclusion issues, like how do we use small amounts of government dollars to crowd in much bigger sums of private capital to address development challenges in poor countries, and how do we ensure that there is a legal and policy regime so that that money can be put to good use effectively and actually achieve the outcomes that, that policymakers and, and, and you know, civil society desire for it. So I was, I was very fortunate to do that work under President Obama. Uh, I think we, uh, over the course of the Obama administration, put several billion dollars to work in development-friendly projects in poor countries. As much good work as we did, I think it also brought home some of the limitations of the incumbent underwriting methodologies that are still being used by some of the biggest players in American and global finance. I want to pull on one thread before switching to AI and machine learning. And that thread is around financial inclusion and its outcomes. You know, so if we move past the phrase, what does it mean? What kind of outcomes do you see when people or countries or geographies that you've worked in where you've seen the levels of 
access and financial inclusion rise, what does that actually mean for people? What kind of outcomes can you see? And then related to that question also is your mentioning of you know, incentivizing private capital. That gets to a question of whether you know, financial inclusion is a public good? Is it a private good? Is it the role of private capital to create equitable outcomes? Is this something that we expect markets to fail at and we need to you know, to really correct for with something more systemic? Like, How do these things all interconnect? It's a great question. I mean, if you look at, as I think going back to one of the earlier questions you had, is if you look at you know, two, two countries that took very different trajectories, you could look at you know, North Korea and South Korea, and just like look at the differences between North Korea and South Korea since the mid-50s. One, one economy is capitalist and highly developed and, you know, dominated by innovation and upstarts. And the other is, you know, <laughs> closed and centrally planned and, you know, lo- low levels of per capita GDP. So, so clearly, I think, you know, in some sense, there, first of all, the roles of government, the role that government plays here is obviously so, so important. And the positive outcomes that can be achieved when you harness market forces in ways that are, you know, responsible and effective can be tremendous. Now, there are problems that markets on their own do not solve. And so there is a role for governments to set to level, you know, a level playing field, set rules of the road that market participants can understand. But I think also increasingly, you know, you ask about whether or not financial inclusion is a is a public good. And I guess I would say, I mean, it is it is in some sense a public good, but like all public goods, there's still an important role for the private sector. And so on the one hand, I don't think it's necessarily the responsible of pri- responsibility of private companies to ensure equality of outcomes. On the other hand, you know, I think at least in the U.S. consumer credit market, you know, we have a long history of certain populations, Black Americans in particular, being excluded from the financial system. And so the data that's available about Black Americans is just more likely to be messy, missing, or wrong. And so as a private company, you know, trying to make loans, you can identify that messy, missing and wrong data actually creates the condition for a market failure. And if you are kind of open eyed about that, and willing to invest a little bit of effort in perhaps finding alternative data in using better math to evaluate populations that are not well represented in the data, you can kind of do your part in both contributing at the kind of individual level to financial inclusion, but also more broadly at the kind of level of a, of a public good. And, and, and you can do well in the process. I mean, one of the things that we like to say at Fair Play is that fairness is good for profits, people, and progress. We are not suggesting that folks make loans solely for the purpose of being fairer. We are suggesting that people make risk-adjusted credit decisions in ways that responsibly include people who've been historically left out. So let's switch to artificial intelligence or going beyond the linear regression in finance and in underwriting. What was your first exposure kind of to that technology being applied instead of a more traditional statistics-driven approach? And what were some of the early learnings that you saw within the underwriting at Zest? When we got started applying complex machine learning ensemble algorithms to credit loan underwriting, it was kind of in the wake of 
the 2008 financial crisis, where frankly, a lot of lenders had been forced by the regulators way up the credit spectrum. And so there were, it was a large population of folks at the bottom of the economic pyramid, again, whose data was messy, missing or wrong, or perhaps had been subject to some kind of credit event. And what we found was that once you got to a certain part in the credit spectrum, let's say, you know, below below conventional credit scores of 680, the logistic and linear regression models just, they were, the, the results were kind of random and you never sort of knew random in which direction. Something would be ran, random to an applicant's benefit or random to their detriment. And so we started at the time, I was kind of the right-hand man to a gentleman who'd spent about you know, eight years as Google's chief information officer. And he had the insight of applying the same complex machine learning ensemble algorithms that Google uses in search to the problem of consumer loan underwriting. And I'll be honest, it didn't work right away. We had, I mean, there there was definitely a learning curve there. And I think one of my first recollections is that, you know, AI systems, machine learning systems are perfectly capable of learning the wrong things. I mean, let me give you one example. In the early days of building one of our credit models, the algorithm came back and said, hey, you should make a bunch of loans in Arkansas. That struck us as a very weird, uh, as a very weird recommendation, in part because our founder had come from Arkansas and, and knew that Arkansas had a, a set of laws that was not very favorable to the making of those loans. And so when we started investigating why the algorithm had recommended making loans in Arkansas, we found that the, that the training data lacked any loans from Arkansas. And so the model concluded that loans never went bad in Arkansas because it had never seen a default in Arkansas. And so I think one of my earliest memories of applying machine learning techniques to consumer loan underwriting is that if you don't take care to use those methodologies responsible, those algorithms can, can run your lending business off a cliff. At the same time, we found that when we got it right, we could dramatically increase positive outcomes for folks that had been, you know, either historically left out of the system or whose credit worthiness or credit riskiness was overstated. And so what we found is that the addition of, of, big, of more data and better mathematics governed and validated with high levels of rigor actually could dramatically outperform conventional underwriting techniques, especially at the bottom of the credit spectrum. We're talking about, you know, increases in approval rate of, you know, 15 to 25 percent with no corresponding increase in risk. In many cases, even the ability to cut defaults on the order of 20 to 30 percent. I think that when we started applying complex machine learning ensemble algorithms to consumer loan underwriting. A lot of people were skeptical that it would work. And I think now everybody basically regards that as the state of the art in loan underwriting. I am really interested in actually the outperformance that you're talking about, both being able to underwrite more people and then also do it more correctly per person. Are there just more data points that are being integrated? Is there alternative data that's being pulled in in addition to sort of the usual credit score inputs? I know that a lot of these algorithms are often, you know, 85% of the weight for the decision just comes from, you know, the zip code. And the zip code is this proxy of a whole bunch of other underlying stuff, whether it's educational background, whether it's 
income levels, whether it's ethnic background and opportunities available, you know, and it gets kind of really muddy. And so how good is the algorithm at splitting this stuff up? And you know, how much deeper is it able to go? And, and if it can go deeper, then what is it doing that's allowing it to make more granular decisions? Generally, the lift can come from two sources, either additional data or information, and better more advanced mathematics, right? So on the data side, increasingly, you know, you're seeing folks use, for example, cash flow data, which in addition to the conventional credit reports, adds a lot of kind of visibility into a, an applicant's balance sheet. Increasingly, at, at Fair Play, we also use what we call fairness through awareness techniques. And what we do there is during model development, we expose the model to the distribution of protected class applicants so that the model is more sensitive to those populations when it encounters them in production. And let me explain what I mean by that. One variable that we see all the time in credit underwriting models is consistency of employment. And if you think about it, consistency of employment is a perfectly adequate variable on which to assess the credit worthiness of a man. But consistency of employment is always, by definition, going to discriminate against women between the ages of 20 and 45 who take time out of the workforce to raise a family. And so one of the things that we do at Fair Play is during model development, we expose the model to the distribution of scores for women so that it can learn that sometimes women take time out of the workforce to raise a family and that all things being equal, maybe a model should pause before it declines some, an applicant for inconsistent employment and look instead to see if, it re, if the applicant resembles good applicants on other dimensions before letting consistency of employment necessarily being a bar to accessing credit. In the case of black applicants, for example, another variable that we see in a lot of models is, you know, do you have a bank account? And on the one hand, you might say, well, do you have a bank account is, you know, somewhat evidence of creditworthiness. But then you got to think about our unfortunate history of redlining in America and the fact that many black Americans live in bank deserts and therefore they do most of their financial services transactions at places like check cashing stores and storefront lenders and increasingly by using apps like Venmo and Zelle and Cash App and PayPal. And none of that transaction history gets reported back into their credit files. So having some awareness that the model that the algorithms will encounter populations in the world like women and black Americans and that those groups may exhibit different behaviors and different profiles than the control group of white men, in our experience, can add some incremental predictive power at the margin to the algorithms. So that's on the data side. On the math side, we're seeing a lot of cool new developments in the area of AI fairness. And the one that we kind of have leveraged the most at Fair Play actually comes from the world of self-driving cars and Tesla. And let me explain what I mean by that. So, you know, historically, algorithms have to be given a target, a thing that they kind of relentlessly maximize. So if you think about this in the case of, let's say, Facebook, Facebook algorithm, you know, the Facebook algorithm is has as its target maximizing the user's engagement, right? So, so the algorithm is going to relentlessly maximize engagement regardless of whether or not the stuff that Facebook is showing you to keep you engaged is bad for your mental health or bad for society. And so Tesla 
very cleverly, you know, faces this problem in self-driving cars. If Tesla gave its self-driving cars the mere objective of getting a passenger from point A to point B, the self-driving car might do that while driving the wrong way down a one-way street or while speeding through red lights or causing mayhem to, you know, passengers or, or, or pedestrians. And so Tesla has to give its self-driving cars or give the neural networks that power self-driving cars two targets, right? Get the passenger from point A to point B while also respecting the rules of the road. It's a compound objective. And so we took one look at that and asked, well, why can't we do that in financial services? Why can't we give a credit model not only the target of predicting who is going to default, but predicting who is going to default while also minimizing disparities between protected and control groups. And so our customers have had the benefit of using that kind of a modified loss function that has two targets in that way. And the results have been really astounding. I mean, one one of the customers who uses our fairness as a service solution was recently able to increase its overall loan approval rate by 10% and increase its approval rate for black applicants specifically by 16%. That yielded them an additional $100 million, $130 million worth of credit originated and something like an additional $5 million in profit. So the thing that we are most excited about on the math side are these developments that allow you to give an algorithm multiple objectives instead of merely one objective. That's amazing. Just showing the blind spots in logic and in what the algorithm incorporates. And of course, it shouldn't be a surprise because these things are just mirrors as to who builds them and what data sets they're incorporating and that they're using and that they're assuming. It's amazing that just adding a bit of logic and lived experience to how these decisions get made can create so much difference. You know, it astounded us too. And the cool thing is, is that every day, you know, some new graduate student at Stanford or Carnegie Mellon puts out some new paper with some new creative methodology for both incorporating additional data or incorporating additional kind of consciousness of protected status in ways that make these algorithms better suited to serving historically disadvantaged populations. Let's double click on Fair Play. Tell us about how Fair Play interacts with its customers. Who does it target as you know, consumers of you know, its platform, its evaluation service? And then maybe we'll go from there. Fair Play is the world's first fairness as a service solution. It can be used by anybody using an algorithm to make a high stakes decision about someone's life. Broadly, our solution has two modules, bias detection and bias remediation. On the bias detection side, we're really asking the question, you know, is my algorithm fair? And if not, why not? On the fairness optimization or the bias remediation side, the module basically allows us to ask a a very profound set of very profound questions, which is, you know, could my algorithm be fairer? What's the economic impact to our business of being fairer? And did we give our declines a second look to see if they might resemble good applicants that the primary decisioning system might have missed? And so we work today primarily with financial institutions, and the pointy end of the spear for us has, in terms of adoption has really been fintechs. 
who are, I think, big enough now as an industry and a sector to take their compliance obligations seriously, but who also appreciate a technology solution to a problem that, you know, the industry has historically thrown consultants and fancy lawyers at. We have been fortunate to work with some of the best brands in fintech. I think American Banker has reported that some of our clients include Figure and Happy Money and Octane and We've got several others that we work with, and they all use our tools to automate their fairness testing and reporting, and then to optimize their decisioning systems for fairness when they find disparities, which sometimes they do. And how does that actually work? Because financial institutions are often very squirrely about providing any access to their data, whether it's because they think it's proprietary and gives them some advantage, or whether because they don't even have the systems for a big data robot to sit on top of another big data robot. What's your connectivity into these companies? What's the software stack and approach to, to actually integrating into them? So we offer two APIs, a bias detection API and a bias remediation API. You're right, of course, we are dealing with extremely sensitive data. So we have had to take, in some cases, various privacy-preserving measures to ensure that that data is treated you know, securely and doesn't pose a threat. You know, Its leakage doesn't pose a threat either to the institutions we work with or, or to their consumers. I will say, on the other hand, you know, many of the institutions we deal with have a legal obligation, either under the Equal Credit Opportunity Act or the Fair Housing Act or various unfair and deceptive practices laws at the federal and state level to do this kind of analysis. And so we've been fortunate, and in addition, I would say that I think that there is a new crop of financial institutions, fintechs in particular, who really see fairness as a business advantage. They see fairness as an opportunity to reach customers that perhaps have been overlooked. And so those institutions have been more willing, I think, to engage with us and to dedicate the engineering resources to code to our API so that they can get the economic regulatory and reputational dividends of being fair. It's such a difficult topic because on the one hand, there's the very human issues that you're talking about. And so you want to talk about the qualitative experience of somebody not getting access to capital or being discriminated against. But then on the other hand, this is going on now, not like in a, you come into a bank branch and there's some racist, you know, underwriting officer that, or, or maybe just somebody who's got bias and they're expressing that unconsciously into a decision. These companies have essentially built gigantic robots that are processing, you know, thousands, if not millions of different individual applications with so many different underlying data points, right? And so on the one hand, you have this giant machine that's churning along and trying to make credit decisions. And then you have almost like a, a counter robot, a machine that goes and evaluates what the first machine does and then says, actually, you know, the outcomes from this automated set of judgments that your math is doing is generating these biases that have these qualitative impacts on the real world. And it's strange to me in a way because it is these two large abstractions that you're managing. How do you see different organizations actually implement the recommendations of your engine? Is it that they start to say, 
let's adjust our underwriting algorithms so that you know we're also optimizing to not have error against what fair play is telling us is you know the definition of good is it that fair play gets closer to being in the underwriting business but is able to correct for unfairness how is this delta addressed is it just more people in the mix trying to cross out mistakes and and reverse mistakes manually like what's that process so our tool basically can be, you know, the benefits of our tool can be consumed in a couple of different ways. The first is just visibility, right? Like, is the algorithm acting in the manner that we intended? If our fairness was strong at one point, is it decaying? And so just like having mere visibility, and, and that can be done both kind of in an automated way where we set up auto, set out automated alerts, you kind of establish fairness guidelines. And, and if your fairness degrades, you know, humans get get pinged. All, so that's just kind of bias detection. On the bias remediation side, financial institutions we work with can consume the benefit of our tool in one of two ways. Either they can tune their existing models to be fairer using our fairness optimization software, or they can leave their existing models in place, but they can route all of the declined applicants to our second look model. And that's a model that augments a lender's primary underwriting or pricing model, but in a way that doesn't require them to rip and replace it in the event that it's not perhaps treating various groups as well as they want it to. And in that sense, I think our software actually allows lenders to ask a very profound question, which is, you know, if we held everything constant that we know about an applicant, except for their race, gender, and age, would we have made a different decision? And what we find is that something like 25 to 33% of the time, the highest scoring black, brown, and female folks that get declined would have performed as well as the riskiest applicants that a lender approves. Lenders can capture those additional applicants either by tuning their incumbent underwriting model to be fairer or by augmenting that model with a second look model. How do you see this evolving over time? Do you see yourselves continuing to focus on underwriting and kind of going horizontally until in most of the industry there is this fairness concept in a machine substrate? Or do you see yourself expanding out of credit to other components that might be algorithmic but then also have equity implications? Like, What does the future look like for you? Yeah, our objective is to build fairness infrastructure for the internet. Our view is that just as Google built search infrastructure for the internet and Stripe built payments infrastructure for the internet, as algorithms take over higher and higher stakes decisions in people's lives, so too will we need to build fairness infrastructure for the internet to de-bias digital decisions in real time. In financial services, we've started and with credit and pricing, mostly because those are two high stakes decisions in the credit underwriting journey that the regulators have historically focused on pursuant to the Equal Credit Opportunity Act. But if you're paying attention to the statements that are coming out of Washington from places like the CFPB and the FTC, you can see that the federal financial regulators are really focused now increasingly on other high stakes decisions in the customer journey. Things like the marketing decisions, fraud detection decisions, and as we head into choppy economic waters, you know, decisions like collections and, lo- and loss mitigation. 
But financial services is just the start. We see applications for our fairness as a service solution in other domains. We're going to be making a really big announcement about our entry into the insurance market in a few weeks. Insurance is another market that's kind of adjacent to consumer and small business finance, where the underwriting methodologies are still, again, 20 to 50 variables, largely logistic regression models built in Excel. And so we see natural application to our technology in the insurance industry. Insurance, by the way, is a domain where we have seen very distressing evidence of bias. You may have seen some of the news articles in the last few months about, for example, black patients in need of kidney transplants being denied those, you know, medical coverage for those kidney transplants, notwithstanding the fact that, you know, coverage was provided to similarly situated white patients. We're seeing also medical devices like pulse oximeter machines, which routinely underestimate the level of oxygenation in, in black patients' blood. So we see see applications in insurance, in healthcare, in employment. New York, for example, has just passed a law requiring algorithmic assessments, uh, excuse me, um, auditing assessments of any algorithm used in the employment domain. And then even in government services, where you look at things like predictive policing, it's really important to know, like, what variables are these algorithms taking into account? And to what extent are those variables driving disparate outcomes for historically disadvantaged groups. That sounds like a really ambitious mission. And it's also, you know, so clear because it is true that much of our decision making is being delegated or abstracted or turned into algorithms. And that those algorithms are really encoding just the way that the world works today, or that, you know, the some amount of data is captured. And there is going to increasingly be a need for things like fair play to understand what those algorithms actually are recommending. One last thought I have around this is that there must be a really strong public sector interest in this work. Like I would think that you know government bodies or legislators or regulators that have an interest in making sure that people have access or that you know the law is followed, those types of entities would be really, really interested in the types of software that you're doing. And in particular, I think about you know the struggles that people, for example, have had trying to regulate Facebook content or YouTube content, where the scale of what is going on is so enormous that the only way to get to good outcomes is through other algorithmic approaches. Do you see a world where the public sector is armed with algorithms of this nature, where the public sector is much more kind of tech forward and where policy is, in a sense, executed through software? Is that something that aligns with your experience so far? Yeah, I think that's where we're headed. I mean, if you look at, there, there was a statement from the CFPB in Washington the other day that said, we're hiring technologists. And there's a report that just came out from the GAO looking at the OCC's fair lending examination procedure manual and determined that, you know, a lot of the procedures that were being taken to examine banks for fair lending violations had not kept pace with advancements in mathematics and, and, and modeling technology. So I think we, we maintain a very active and intensive dialogue with the regulators and very, very major state 
is actually in the process of retaining us to use our technology in some examinations they do of regulated entities. And if you look at the RFPs that are coming out from across the government and then states like New York and California and Connecticut, you can see that there are regulators and policymakers in each of those places who are totally focused on the fact that machine learning is both the problem and the solution, right? And that that we have to act as a society with intentionality to ensure that the unfairness of the past isn't being programmed into the digital decisions of the future. And the only way to do that, as you point out, at scale is with machines. It's a fascinating conversation and a really important topic. Kareem, thank you so much for joining us today. If our listeners want to learn more about you and about Fair Play, where should they go? Yeah, www.fairplay.ai. We'd love to hear from you. We are looking for folks who share our passion that fairness is good for profits, good for people, and good for progress. Amazing. Thank you again for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks for having me, Lex. Real big fan of the newsletter. Hi, everyone. That's it for this week's episode of the Fintech Blueprint. For more technical deep dives into all things fintech and decentralized finance, check out fintechblueprint.com and grab a free subscription to the newsletter. This is Lex, and I'll see you next time.